Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, again for your word, for the psalm we've just been singing, for the, the hymn that we sang earlier, for the prayers that have been offered. We ask that you would hear us once again, and that you might work your word deep into our very souls, that we might be changed, that we might not leave this place as we've come, but we'd leave more like Christ. And if anyone here, is without the saving work of Christ, having never acknowledged his eternal being and his incarnate work on behalf of sinners, may this be the day that you give them that faith and they leave with us rejoicing in eternal life in Christ Jesus, the only hope for sinful men. We pray in his name, amen. We live, and surely you know this, we live in a very fickle world. People change their minds about most everything, about every time they hear or see something new. If that describes you, then the appropriate thing to do is repent. Because we shouldn't be easily changed. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't things that we need to change from time to time. And not all change is, is morally wrong. But patterns can be developed that are not good for us. Patterns that allow us to be easily swayed by the opinions of others. People turn on Fox News and they're swayed. They flip over to CNN and they're swayed. And then they go online to Newsmax TV and they're swayed. They listen to a political candidate and, oh, yeah, that sounded good. Oh, oh well, no, he was better. And we just shift around. No matter what men do or think, Christ 
is still the centerpiece of history, and he is still the only hope of sinners. And one of the great problems that men and women face is changing their ideas about Christ, who he is, what he did, why it's important. And so I would encourage you to remember that the word of God concerning the living word of God is the definitive statement on all this. And it doesn't matter what anyone else says. We live in an age of uh, change, don't we? Those of you who who have ever studied languages know that there's been a, 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 a an earthquake of sorts over the past 75 years uh, that has brought considerable change to linguistic rules. Books upon books have been written about linguistic rules. Um, Social patterns. Climate trends. Moral fads. Religious shifts. And if we're not really careful, we'll let these patterns... influence how we think about God and man. Sin and salvation. But we need to live by this code. Paul gave it to us at the end of chapter 15 after he's talked about the resurrection to come and the glorified bodies of those who are in Christ He says this, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be firm, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let me illustrate why this is important. I remember years ago reading a book that was written in the late 1960s by a professor and it was written on uh, the doctrine of scripture and uh, that author was Clark Pennock. Clark Pennock was a, a very noted, young, up-and-coming theologian, biblical scholar. Jump ahead to some years later, he's denied everything he wrote in that book. He is embraced in fact, promoted being the father of, of, of what we call open theism, that God's not really in charge. God doesn't really know what's going to happen. He just simply observes what happens and tries to stay out front of it. Well, I'm sorry, but you probably, hopefully, you picked up the, 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 the problem with that statement trying to observe what happens and stay out in front of it. Well, I don't know from what perspective you could observe something that's just happened 
and be out in front of it. Unless maybe you're like those fools out in Yellowstone that we've observed. The signs say, you know, do not get out of your cars, do not get close to the bison, and they park their cars and run out to get out in front of the herds to take pictures as the herds come rambling across the roads. And that's the reason people die in Yellowstone every year is because they don't observe the rules of the bison and the elk. Maybe that's what Clark Pinnock had in mind and his, his colleagues. Well... God's not out there observing us and taking pictures and then scratching his, his head trying to decide how do I deal with this. We have the scriptures to tell us better than that. No, we're supposed to be firm, immovable, and always excelling in the work. And so what John comes to the end here is, is to remind us of that. So what chapter 21 is about, really, as I've said, it's turning that. It's the transition from chapter 20 that tells us this is why everything was written, so that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And then chapter 21 is now, church, let's go. Last week we saw the Lord tell Peter, follow me. Follow me. More than once. And that's how he concluded that paragraph above, verses 15 through 19. Follow me. Now, immediately, Peter doesn't. John wants us to deal with this. And so... Jesus ends this book with another call to follow me. First thing I want you to see, discipleship is ultimately about Christ and not about others. You say, well, wait a minute. If we're following Christ, aren't we supposed to be concerned about others? Yes, we're not denying that. But discipleship is not about what other people are doing. It's about what Christ has called us to do. It's about us following Christ. And look what Peter does. Peter turned, after Jesus has said, follow me, Peter turns and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. We've already determined that's John, the apostle, not John the Baptist. He's already dead. He looks and he sees John the apostle coming. Remember, Jesus has apparently taken him to the side to do this, love me, do you love me, do you love me, three times. And then follow me, tend my sheep, tend my sheep, tend my sheep. It's the follow me paragraph. The restoration of Peter. And then Peter turns, he sees the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. And he explains, John throws in, that's the one who is reclining at the table close to Jesus and said, Lord, who is it going to betray you? Uh, and we've seen all the way through this, Peter and John stayed pretty close to one another. They seem to be best buds. And so here, John gets curious and he's, he's heading that way. Peter looks. And so 
he says, uh, of all the things he could ask Jesus, think about this. Jesus has said, follow me. I don't know about you, but it seems to me the appropriate questions would have been something like this. Lord, follow me. Let me just ask, what would you ask? That's a rhetorical question. Let's don't get into a discussion here. What would you ask? If somebody said, hey, follow me, you'd probably say, where? Now, my daddy used to say, hey, come on, go with me. And I'd say, where are we going? He said, doesn't matter, does it? Well, there's a sense in what, okay, Jesus says, follow me, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm, let's just go. But on the other hand, Jesus also said, I'm going. I'm going back to the Father. So now Peter's supposed to follow him. He's going to the Father, but I can't go to the Father. So what am I supposed to be doing? Three years, some odd, Lord, you've been telling us lots of stuff. What am I supposed to do? Where do I start? You know, look at Jerusalem. It's a mess. Do I go there? Do I go back home to Galilee? I mean, these, these are legitimate questions. Those would have been sanctified questions, but not, hey, Lord, what about him? Is he going to die on a cross too? And here's, I'm going to summarize for you what Jesus says. It's none of your business. It's none of your business. It shouldn't matter to you, Peter. How he's going to die. It shouldn't matter that he's going to die. You should be concerned for your brother. But not how's he going to die. When Peter saw him he said Jesus what about this man? Jesus said if it's my will that he remain until I come. What is that to you? You follow me. So that's the first point is. and Aren't we just like Peter though? I've just just railed on Peter and now I'm going to say we're all just like Peter because we tend to be distracted from following Jesus with what other people are doing. And this is sadly how it goes too often, isn't it? Well, she hasn't done anything lately. Why am I working myself to death at the church? Why am I teaching Sunday school again when there's dozens of people at Covenant who don't lift a finger, don't even come to Sunday school. I've done my time. That's what Peter's doing right here. He's being distracted from following Jesus. Just follow me. By the way, look in the Bible, as far as you want to look, there's no deadline on how long we follow Jesus. Whoop, 65 no more follow. Okay? I think that point just was made and was stinging. Now, so, we have to be careful not to fall into that trap of looking around and observing what others are doing and, well, I can't do that, so we just don't do anything. Or what they're not doing, and since they're not doing it, well, I'm not going to do it either. I'm tired. There's something else going on here, though. There's something else John interjects that we have to, we have to notice, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't let it escape us. 
If we're going to be busy for the Lord following him, we don't need to disseminate false or even confusing information. Did you see that? Jesus says something that's really plain. It's plain in the English. It's plainer in the Greek. I know. Plainer is not a word, but it got your attention. It's plain. He didn't say that this disciple was not going to die. Go back and read it. We're not going to read it again right now, but he doesn't say that. He just says, hey, if I decided for him to live and not die on this earth until I come again, what's that got to do with you? I've told you, you're going to die. I've told you in the meantime, follow me. Follow me, Peter. Don't let, don't let what I do with him distract you. And God's going to use all of us differently. Don't let that be a distraction. Right? Now, somehow, this, this saying began to be circulated. And it was circulated widely. Notice how it says in the ESV, so the saying spread abroad. In other words, just about anywhere you went, people were going to say, hey, did you hear that John's not going to die? Then that got that got expanded into John's not going to die until Jesus comes and we know that most men live to be about therefore Jesus is going to come back real soon and that silliness even went into the early church the post apostolic period with people sitting around twiddling their thumbs if the gadgets had been invented by then they'd have been playing with their gadgets and not much would be done. And church had to deal with that over and over. It's had to deal with it all the time. We've, and we've seen some horrific examples of this. In the early 19th century, this fellow by the name of William Miller, this wild-eyed farmer, Good guy, good neighbor, I'm sure. He decided that he had figured out when Jesus was coming again. And guess what? He gathered a bunch of followers. Now you'd think someone would have read their Bible by, by the time William Miller came around and knew that Jesus said, not even the Son of Man knows that day talking about himself uh, we won't get into well, what does that mean if Jesus didn't know and Jesus was God how could he not know if he's God yeah but leave that alone we're talking about the the God man and he's speaking in his humanity that's the answer to the riddle but why didn't William Miller know that? and why didn't all those hundreds and hundreds of people who sold out who quit everything who sat down waiting on the day instead of following me, why didn't somebody say, Jesus said nobody knows the day. You're crazy, Miller. You go sit on a stylus someplace 
like Osimon Stylites did back in the early church and started monasticism. You go do that if you want to, but we're going to believe the Bible. We're going to believe God. We're going to believe Jesus. No one knows the day. We're going to follow Jesus right now. That means we're going to obey him. We're going to go and do the work. You'd expect you would have said that, right? Well, it's back to... Sometimes people get caught up in novelty. And Jesus is just not enough. And what Jesus says is just not enough. Covenant folks have heard me say this through the years. You can just, you can, you can write this down. As a friend of mine, you say, you can put this in your pipe and smoke it. Every heresy in the history of the church has started with people not being satisfied with Jesus Christ. The gospel, plain and simple, Jesus Christ is all we need is just not enough. And so they come up with all sorts of heresies. Heresies in the way they do things, heresies in the things they believe. You know, you can be heretical in what you do, not just in what you believe. Well, more recently than William Miller, some of you may have never heard of William Miller, but some of you are old enough to remember the 1990s. And a fellow out on the West Coast, you'd expect that, by the name of Harold Camping. He didn't just decide the year, he knew the days. And then it didn't happen And he figured out how he got it wrong. He had looked at the wrong calendar. He looked at his wife's instead of his, and that got him offline. And No, you know, there are different calendars that float around in history, and he finally got the one that really matched the Bible. And he set another date, and guess what? Well, we're all still here. It didn't happen. And people still followed him. His radio network continued. That's amazing, isn't it? They were following him instead of Christ. And they were disseminating error in the, in the midst of it. And that's what Peter's doing here. So, it, in this remarkable that some of Peter's earliest teaching included error about his coming. Now, Paul's going to have to address this. Remember, it disseminated abroad. We're going to, in a few weeks, get to 1 Thessalonians. I'm going to do a little interim mini-series starting next week. But then we'll get to 1 Thessalonians. And we'll eventually get in chapters 3, 4, and 5... And that's exactly what Paul's addressing is this problem right here. That people are going to be alive and all of a sudden people started dying. And the church at Thessalonica says, well, wait a minute. What about these people who are dying? When Jesus comes back, what will happen to them? They're going to be left in the ground? Because we heard that. So we'll get to that with 1 Thessalonians. 
But that's what happens when you, when you, when you have, and I'm just going to use, this is my label, over-realized eminence theology of Christ's return. Oh, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is coming. We used to sing a song back in my other tradition days. Jesus is coming soon. Well, he is. But we don't know when. Until then, we obey. We follow Jesus. It's that simple. The Peter problem is going to be addressed. We'll get there when we see it. We need to simply tell the truth in love. We need to give the world the reasons John has set forth. We're supposed to call them to believe in Christ. We're supposed to teach them all that has been commanded. We're to follow Christ. Lastly, and briefly, discipleship is grounded on a world of evidence. That's how John ends it. This is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know, and let me, add, let me address the we here. As you can imagine, commentators spill some ink over who's we. And maybe this means that someone else wrote this chapter or maybe even this book besides John. Maybe it was a little, a little group of people, John followers maybe. Well, when you get right down to it, God wrote the book. But is there anything so unusual about an author using the we? Not even in English composition is that strange. Now, let me tell you a better way to deal with it, though, than English composition, of course. Go to 1 John and read how many times John, the apostle, same man, says, we, we, we. And it's not in the context of him needing to use the third person plural. It's him simply speaking like you and I do. Well, we want you to know this. What do we mean when we say that? What do we mean... All those that agree with me. We, the church, but I'm speaking. When I pray, Lord, we need you. We, we know that this testimony is true. John's simply saying, hey, everything that's been said is true. You can bank on it. And then he goes on. And says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them written, I suppose, the world itself. So in addition to everything John has recorded, he's saying, there's a whole lot more. I could go writing just the things I know, John says. And think about it. I've said this over and over. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have things in them that John doesn't even have time to pick up on and utilize. So he could be referring to those, and he is, but he could be referring to everything. Because Jesus had a hand in everything. 
And there are even things that God's done that aren't recorded in these pages. You do understand that. An infinite God who's been at work from eternity. This book doesn't contain everything God has done. John knows that because he knows this God is this grand, infinite God. And he says, if, if, if we were to write down everything he's done, the world wouldn't hold up under the, the, the heavy load of the books that would record it. See, one last parting shot John gets at. These are all the reasons we should believe. With a God like this, why, why not believe? Why not believe? Now, this gives us, this point quickly, this should give us confidence to speak to people about the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, but, you know, some of my friends, some of my family are hostile. I was reminded just recently, I watched an old interview with Christopher Hitchings. What an angry man. What a vile man. You say, but I know some people like Hitchings. But hey, what's the worst they can do? They may harm your body, and Hitchings, to my knowledge, never harmed anyone physically. He was just a verbal abuser. But here's, here's the other side of it. How do you know that on a given day, that's not the day that God ordained for the truths of God's word to break through that anger and that, that vileness and save someone. Faith comes from hearing. See, we, we can go out as Christians with this confidence. Let me just read it to you. This comes from Acts 13. Some of you know where I'm going with this. When the Gentiles heard the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Why? Well, Luke goes on. All who had been appointed to eternal life believed. Because see, when, the, when Paul and Silas in this context, when, when they go, or Paul and Barnabas rather, when they go and preach, they preached with the confidence and the boldness that God had appointed people to believe and he would save them. We don't, we don't tell people the gospel wondering if. It's just a matter of when. When will that person that we, we speak the truth to be one of God's appointed to believe? Not if, but when. 
And if we stop after the first one or the second one, who reviles us, then we may never know about the third or the fourth or the fortieth that God had appointed. So we go and tell the truth because it's certain that God's going to use it. So the final call of John is to faith in the eternal word. He calls us simultaneously to stay on point. He calls us to not be distracted by others. He simply says, follow me. And that means follow me with taking the gospel. Remember last week, there's a twofold call upon the apostles and upon the church, the hook and the crook, the fishing of men, calling them to Jesus, fishers of men, and the crook, the shepherd's crook, to shepherd them, to draw them closer and closer to the Lord. So we do that with our children, our parents, our grandparents, our best friends, our neighbors, our colleagues, and we pray much that God would work in their hearts. That's what John's calling us to here at the end. We have every reason to go about it happily and joyfully so that they may believe. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for this wonderful book we've been engaged with for the past couple of years. We pray now that as we leave it formally that you might keep it in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.